one. And we are recording episode 840, Sunday, June 12th, 2022, with Professor Dr. Theodore Postal. <laughs> Dr. Postal, Ted, please introduce Ted, yourself. Yeah, Ted is fine. Please introduce yourself to all the all the listeners. Uh, I'm I'm Ted Postal. I'm uh, uh, a an emeritus faculty member at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. My area of uh, studies are uh, basically science and technology questions that are directly related to uh, national security policies of one kind or another. So basically. Uh, what I try to do is add value to discussions by simply providing people with technical facts that either describe the facts as we best know them and or the uncertainties associated with the facts. So uh, coming to you as, as President Tommy, I pull you aside and I say, Ted, how, how realistic is a limited thermonuclear exchange because i look at it and my favorite my favorite book all time is raven rock by garrett graff all about the site r norad the the greenbrier hotel it's all just about how we're all pretty much going to die and i've interviewed him and it's one of my favorite episodes and to me one of the most i've interviewed um uh, john halderman who is uh, a marine and was on a ship and witnessed castle bravo when I hear it kind of being loosely thrown around in the last two, three months about a first strike, about a limited exchange, about containing it to tactical nuclear weapons, nothing in my short 31-year-old life has really ever sobered me up more quickly than seeing what I thought were mature, intelligent adults just loosely throwing out the the term limited thermonuclear exchange is that even best case scenario possible or should it not be something even uttered in this in a with any sort of air of rationality well i i I think uh the most well there, there are two rather different aspects uh to uh this question one is um uh all of them are related to the problem of escalation. In other words, uh, if one could imagine only one nuclear weapon being used, it would be a terrible event, but it would not be the end of the world. I mean, we we did that, for example, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We dropped bombs on two different occasions, uh, killing a very large number of mostly non-combatants. So it doesn't follow that a small number of nuclear weapons leads to the end of the world, at least due to the technical details of those weapons themselves. The reason um, the it is extremely unlikely that you could use a small number of nuclear weapons and not have it escalate out of control is both uh, technical and uh, social or political. It's, it's both social and political. One uh, way to um, let's take the social first, because that's really quite important and everybody can easily understand it. Uh, the problem you have when something really bad happens 
and if you're in a position where you have to make the, or you believe you have to make decisions, it's not, you know, you, you may not have to make a decision, but you may believe you have to make a decision uh, and you don't have information. Uh, it's very difficult uh, to understand what the consequences of your uh, decision might be. So for example, um, just, just look at something as horrifying, but simple as the attack on the World Trade Center. Here you have the President of the United States. He's in Florida. He's uh, speaking to school children. And somebody comes in and tells him the, the World Trade Center has just been attacked. He, he doesn't have any idea what's happening. It's not because he's foolish or silly. or I mean, he has no information. All he knows is that something bad is probably happening because his aides have told him and information is coming in. Nobody knows why uh, this World Trade Center has been attacked. Nobody has any idea how many other attacks could follow it. So, for example, at one point during this attack, I was in Washington during the attack, so I, in some sense, uh, was, was very... I was in a building right next to the Supreme Court building, a friend's house, and we were watching this on television. And I was going to give a, a, a talk that night on, you know, to a group of people. And uh, when the building uh, was struck, nobody knew that it would collapse. It's not clear that it would collapse. Um, there are reasons why it collapsed, but uh, a different structure might not have collapsed. Um, nobody knew um, whether there were other planes in the air uh, that were on uh, missions to attack other uh, installations. Um, we didn't know if there was another plane in the air that could uh, execute an attack or if there was a hundred other planes in the air that could execute attacks. We just had no idea what the situation was like. And neither did the president. The president actually knew no more than I knew sitting at this television, watching this horrifying event evolve in, in front of our eyes. We just didn't know. Now, in the case of uh, nuclear weapons, of course, you would have no information. You, I mean, you have information a nuclear weapon was used, maybe. You, would, uh, you might know who used it in the case of the Ukraine war. There's always a possibility it was somebody else, but I think that's improbable. So it'd be, it would probably be a reasonable assumption to assume that it was it was a Russian weapon. Uh, but what are the Russians about to do? Are they going to strike many other uh, installations with nuclear weapons? Um, is this just a fire, a shot across our bow to say, look, this is getting very serious. We got it. We need to start talking. Uh, should we respond immediately? Uh, if uh, the Russians have used the weapon, you can be sure that all of their forces have been put in a posture to do to, to suffer minimum damage if we strike back with nuclear weapons. So are they doing that because they're planning to strike back with more weapons? Or are they doing that just because they're doing what a military uh, a military officer would assume is prudent right you as a military commander your job is to fight your forces and to protect them as best you can so if you know that something bad could happen 
an American response, even if you have no intention of firing another nuclear weapon, you might well go into a posture where your forces are as prepared as they can be for nuclear counterstrikes. This looks like you're preparing to do a nuclear counterstrike. So how does anybody unravel this situation in a short interval of time? And the answer is there is no way because no one, no one either side, even the one that struck first, has no idea what the next step could be. Now, let's look at the technical. Okay, so I'm just talking about social. I'm just talking like, uh, you know, something happens in a room. Now there's the technical side. Um, what kind of sensors do you have? In the case of the Russians, um, it's very improbable that the United States would respond massively going after their central strategic forces because every if you're thinking about the American mindset, you know that they're not suicidal, just as you know the Russians are not suicidal. So it would be kind of an act of suicide to try to destroy the Russian strategic forces. On the other hand, you have a satellite early warning system in the case of Russia that's inadequate. You can't tell when a lot of things are being launched around the world. Um, you can see them coming once they're in view of a radar, but the radar is basically line of sight and the world is round. So you really only have 10 or 15 minutes uh, valid warning. Um, there could be problems with your radar or communication systems. A lot of effort goes into making sure that they uh, that they are as as robust as they possibly can be. But sometimes things happen and you're sitting there and you're trying to get information from your field commanders, which would which which is has to do with their visual and their 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 own communication systems and their uh, their own uh, drones, if they're using them or data collection systems. Every piece of information is very small and isolated, and there's really no way to quickly get an integrated view about what's going on. And even if you have an integrated view, you don't know how to interpret it. What if you have an integrated view of um, American military forces operating in Europe? What, what, what could you what would you know? You might see them taking cover. Does that mean they're they are preparing to? Uh, execute strikes in response. So the, the, the problem is basically that nobody, nobody on either side, no matter who initiates it, doesn't matter whether it's the Americans initiating this or the Russians, has, a, has any idea what the next steps are going to be. And anything that could happen, inadvertent or not, uh, will be interpreted in one way or another. So uh, we know, for example, during the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s, uh, there were American planes that flew over Cuba uh, that um, were shot at. Uh, and um, uh, was it a hostile act? Uh, yes, it, you know, in some sense it was, but was it really an intention to start World War III or not? Uh, there were submarines that the Russians had uh, um, in, in their military, uh, uh, you know, deployed at sea. And the U.S. Navy at that time had an operational rule 
that if there's a submarine in the area, you force it to the surface because it's much less of a threat, even if it's not directly attacking you. So we start forcing these submarines to the surface. And what do the Russians know about this? The commanders don't know why they're being forced to the surface. All they know is that the Americans are dropping grenades on them. And uh, does this mean they're about to be attacked by the Americans? Should they respond with the nuclear weapons they have on the submarine? The problem when you have a very dangerous, massive crisis is that your military forces, when they're very well commanded, so I'm not suggesting that they're, you know, the American forces were well commanded in the Cuban Missile Crisis, but they were, but the officers did what was absolutely appropriate when you're prepared to fight against an adversary who who may attack you. When you take those preparations, which is exactly the appropriate and responsible thing for the commander on the scene, because the commander on the scene is not the president. The commander on the scene is responsible for his or her military forces, keep them alive, keep them in a position where they can fight if called for. Those actions look aggressive to the other side. And both sides see each other in this escalating chain of actions and reactions. And the president or the premier, if it's Russia or whatever, they have no information about what's going on there. For example, if one of those Russian submarines had fired a nuclear torpedo and, let's say, destroyed an American aircraft carrier, all the American president would have known is that as a nuclear weapon was used against an aircraft carrier. They would not know anything about the circumstances. So was this part of the escalation that was planned by the leadership in Russia? Or was this just an event that was not even thought about by, by the Russian leadership, but happened because military forces took actions that, given their narrow understanding of their immediate situation, seemed appropriate? So, so you have this situation where the political leader uh, really wants to keep things, keep a lid on things for under, for all the right reasons. But at the same time, the military forces at the lower level, they are reacting to their immediate circumstance around them. They are not under the control of the of the leader. And and there's no way to get that information to each commanding officer who is trained to do what is needed to protect their forces and make sure their forces are in a position to fight and also to protect themselves. So any, any idea that you can do something limited that would not have a very high probability of escalating out of control into a general nuclear exchange is really not understanding the most basic facts of how these forces operate and how, how limited the information is anyone who is in a powerful position uh, might have. So my, my joke, you know, I, I, often, uh, uh, I often joke with my friends that if you want to meet someone who knows next to nothing about the military situation, talk to a high-level uh, military analyst, you know, talk, <laughs> you know, look at what happened. Let, I mean, we have an example of this right here in front of us. Um, uh, before 
the war, before Putin went into Ukraine, the general wisdom by everybody, and I want to indicate me too, all right, the general wisdom was that the Russian forces were modernized, they had solved a lot of their military problems from the past and they were going to sweep into Ukraine. It would be extremely difficult for you, for the Ukraine to uh, Ukrainian forces uh, to engage them and slow up their advance. Um, not only did our CIA predict that, but all of these independent analysts like myself wrongly predicted this. And very, very, very importantly, Putin's own intelligence and military predicted this. In other words, nobody knew the right answer. Nobody. Now, there were some people who looks like may have understood because uh, I saw a very interesting uh, video interview with a guy who who spends his time listening uh, to bloggers to bloggers from the in the Russian military. So he was aware that there was problems with with getting fuel. Before the fighting, there were problems uh, getting equipment fixed, that there were problems getting secure communications equipment. And if you listen, this guy thought that it was not going to be a cakewalk, it turns out. He was in the minority. He wasn't in one of the big intelligence agencies. But in fact, he was the one who was right when everybody else was wrong, because he realized that this army that was always going to sweep across Europe in weeks without us being able to stop it. You know, this is the whole NATO-Warsaw Pact mythology of uh, when I was, uh, you know, it's a little ahead of you, uh, but, but I'm sure you know about it. And, uh, you know, all these forces, there will be follow-on forces and all this. It was going to be cadres of armor followed by armor, followed by infantry, followed by armor with heavy artillery support. None of it happened in Ukraine. None of it. I mean, it, and that's a more modernized force. Now, unknown to, unknown, to, unknown to Putin, his oligarchs took a good, good chunk out of his modernization efforts. And he didn't have an adequate system of oversight. And so uh, he really didn't know uh, that his forces were not prepared properly to, to go into a real war. He also had made other terrible mistakes, like thinking that uh, Ukrainian forces were um, uh, were somehow not up to the job. In fact, it looks like they were superbly trained and ready to fight a war against what looked like a superior enemy, but in fact was not. And uh, they 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 were very well commanded. Uh, they um, you know they they had these uh, light anti-armor weapons and they used them very effectively against. All of the logistics, destroying trucks with petroleum in them. Then they had these much more expensive and advanced uh, anti-tank weapons like this Javelin, which uh, has very excellent homing capabilities. They used those selectively on the worst, on the most threatening targets, the tanks. And, you know, they did a superb job causing uh, this initial uh, push into, um, into Ukraine uh, to fail. There's no doubt all these arguments about um, uh, Putin wasn't really planning to try to take Kiev. And that's anyone who looks at the military 
operation as it evolved knows that what knows exactly what he was planning. He was planning to sweep in in a blitzkrieg, surround Kiev, um, entrap the forces um, fighting in, in in the east, but with another thrust uh, 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 west of uh, of Kiev, encircle that force, and then crush them. It was going to be a World War II uh, kind of um, Panzer-like war, uh, fast-moving armor, and, and crush the enemy. Instead, it just boop went nowhere just dropped in its tracks and uh, that's a big miscalculation and it's not simply a miscalculation it's because he did not know from his own people what he had in hand to do the job he wanted to do whatever one thinks of him uh you know this guy is a is 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 a very dangerous man i mean he's uh he comes out of an intelligence community uh which incidentally is not unlike ours we somehow talk about these guys like they're different from ours i mean go go and look at at the torturing that went on by our people and uh tell me that they're better than the kgb they're not clear to me and uh so there's a kind of culture in these intelligence systems where you're, you think you're doing the right thing because you're doing it for your country. And there's not enough oversight and there's not enough feedback because security requirements make it very hard to get information up and down through the structure. So people on top really have a limited knowledge of what people on below are doing, even when they have the access. And uh, so Putin didn't know a thing. He, he, he was clueless. And he made a, a strategic blunder that wipes out essentially all of his strategic successes prior to this, because he was very successful strategically. I, you know, I, I don't like, I, you know, I always try to tell people I'm not an admirer. <laughs> I'm not trying to say this man is a great man, but it's important to understand your adversary. And just because you don't like their values and what they believe and how they work, doesn't mean they're stupid yeah. and it doesn't mean that they're not thinking and you better keep that in mind because they will surprise you if you don't give them enough credit and putin has out he's outmaneuvered us on every uh, strategic uh, situation we've been in whether it's syria or elsewhere uh he's had less resources than we've had and he's just he's just jujitsued us but this is a gigantic mistake that Every victory he had is wiped away now. And maybe that's good. I don't know. Yeah. He's not a good guy. No. But but uh, on the other hand, um, we are not good guys either. And I think people need to understand that we played a role in this too. Yeah. And that's my main concern now. It's not that uh, – I think it's a bad thing that Putin done, did. There's, there's no arguing that what he did was uh, inexcusable, brutal, reckless, uh, you know, just horrifying, uh, murderous thing to do. But um, but um, we set the stage for this. Yeah. And uh, and history indicates how we did it. And I think it's a very bad idea for us not to look back on ourselves and ask what we did wrong and how we can get out of this, if possible. 
I think that's one of the most uh, uncomfortable things I've experienced Yeah, at, at 31. Yeah. It was really in the last two years. I started this podcast December 2019. Just throughout the course of this, the people I've interviewed, the I've read more books in the last two years than I have in my whole life, is that sort of creeping awareness that we are not Captain America, that we are not some Marvel hero that always does the right thing. I I do hold that we are the least evil, but you cannot with any sort of straight face read any book on the history of the Cold War on any intelligence operation from from the Berlin airlift to Abu Ghraib. You cannot look at it and go, yeah, there's no reason why anybody should hate us. No, yeah. you, you look at these things and you go, well, of course they think of this. They think of us this way. Like, why wouldn't you? You don't know anything. You're living on the backside of, backside of some mountain and, you know, guys and blacked out with night vision, fly out of a helicopter in the middle of the night, shoot your uncle in the face who really was just a goat herder. What else are you going to grow up to want to do other than enact revenge? And that's just one example or NATO encroachment around Russia. I mean, we're yeah. certainly not giving them. And it's very easy to sit here and go, don't give them an out. Don't give them an inch. That's also not how the world works. And when we when we throw them off of the swift banking system and try to sanction them into the stone age, are we not, are we not priming the priming the, the arena for them to do anything other than resort to a nuclear weapon? Well, it's uh, it's, it's very troubling. I mean, uh, this is, uh, we don't want, uh, uh, you know, Putin to succeed in what he was trying to do in Ukraine. But at the same time, uh, we don't want to push him and, in fact, the Russian public into a situation where uh, they are so desperate, they do something stupid. And uh, I, I think there is a real grave danger of this. And I don't see, unfortunately, I don't see our leadership uh, really showing any understanding of this. And um, I've had the unpleasant experience of dealing with some of these people from the Obama advisors from the Obama administration and and the um, uh, and, and, and now Biden. And uh, these people are amateurs, many of them. There are very few of them that really have uh, a serious knowledge of security issues, but they just came from the right families. They were in the right place in society. And all of a sudden they get promoted because the, the communities are so narrow and, and, and never look out beyond their little boundaries to get promoted into these really important positions. Well, let me give you an example. I'll just, uh, uh, and uh, there's this guy, um, uh, Colin called. He's a, a deputy secretary of defense. Now I know him because he was at Stanford. Uh, this is this is the crime of the university now I'm talking about. They take this character, uh, he, they put him, they make him a co-director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation. I, I was one of the people who helped build that institution. I'm no longer part of it because, you know, they, 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 they have blackballed me out of it. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I wouldn't want to be part of it. So they make this guy a co-director. 
All right. So I um, um, when when Trump uh, did this very unwise thing of uh, withdrawing from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty. Uh, stop me if you think your audience will need uh, more information. Uh, but, you know, they, he withdrew. Uh, Trump withdrew from the INF Treaty. And I got just angry because I knew that the United States had been violating the treaty for well over a decade. And the reason they were violating the treaty for well over a decade was because they put in these two, um, they called them Aegis Assure systems. Yeah. Aegis on the shore. Yeah. Aegis on the ground systems in Romania and, and, and Poland. Now, anyone who looks at that system seriously uh, will know immediately what, what they did is they had this wonderfully capable Aegis system on a ship. And when I say wonderfully capable from the point of view of a military system, it has these launch tubes which sit inside the hull of the ship vertically. And so what you do is uh, typically they, uh, a ship might have two 64 uh, missile box launchers. So, so uh, uh, you'd have 64 missiles in one box on the forward end of the ship. 64 missiles on, on the back end. The system was designed from the beginning so it could carry any kind of missile that a ship at sea might need in warfare. So, for example, if the ship is going to defend itself against airplanes, it would have some of the, of the, of the canisters would have uh, surface-to-air missiles in them. If it was going to ha have anti-ship capability some of the canisters might have anti-ship missiles in them they may have also other ways to launch an other anti-ship missiles but you could carry them in the vertical box launcher they modified it so it could carry anti-ballistic missiles uh, you know shoot down ballistic missiles a worthless system i bolt with I, mean, a bolt. I would i if i were a navy commander and had control i'd say Give me another cruise missile. I don't yeah. want that thing. It's a waste of my. You're not hitting it. So, uh, and it could launch cruise missiles and anti-submarine missiles, and and the system was designed from the beginning to be able to do this. So the electrical interface is match is set up so that any missile can be plugged into it. It's like the USB port on your computer. Anything you plug into it can be, you know, it has the electrical connections so that it can manage a hard disk drive, a CD drive, a, a video screen, a microphones, you know. So, so the interface, the electrical interface is already there. And all you need is a piece of trivial piece of small piece of software to tell the system that it's talking to your hard drive or a CD or to a microphone. So the system recognizes the particular technical device and makes all the adjustments. It needs what we, if, if, if you're talking computers, it's called the driver. It just gives you the driver for that particular hardware. Now, cruise missiles have their own driver and the driver would fit on a CD. In fact, less than a CD or a thumb drive. And if you wanted to launch a cruise missile, 
if you didn't have the software in your system, although you, you would, um, all you do is take a, a thumb drive and load it in. It's just that simple. So it's no problem at all. And physically, everything in the system works. So now you take this system, which is designed to make a ver very versatile fighting, sh fighting ship. And what do you do? You dig a hole in the ground and you put the whole thing, all the canisters in the ground someplace. And then you say this has no strike capability with cruise missiles. That's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. It's a lie. All right. So I write this article and I'm very careful in the way I write it. I try to write. I, I'm different in person than I am in my writing. <laughs> I, I write this article. I very carefully point out how the Russians may have violated the treaty, like we were saying. And but, you know, you ought to keep in mind that, the, you know, the Americans did. And so I write this article. It's very well received. To my great surprise, I, I expect it to be attacked because this current environment is crazy. I really expect it to be attacked and ignored, but it wasn't. It was picked up by a whole bunch of other journals, and it caused a little stir. Not enough, in my view, but a little. Because basically it was saying, you know, the Russians weren't the only responsible party here. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I'm sitting in a seminar in Stanford, and this I called is up on the dais, you know, with the speaker. And toward the end of the – nothing, nothing at all about cruise missiles in this – he makes this statement in public about this guy, Postal, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's writing stuff about, you know, INF, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I go up to him afterwards, trying, figuring, well, try to talk to this guy, although he's a moron for what he did. Um, and he is a moron. It's, 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 it's outrageous. He's in a university. He's not willing to carry on a discussion about the facts that have been laid out. And he's making he's making accusations in public against an individual who's well known in that university because I was an early founder, you know, not founder, but person in the in the center. And I go up to him and try to talk with him. He says, look, I, can't, I don't have time to talk with you. I have a real job. How's that for a response? I have a real job. And he walks, turns around and walks away. Now, this guy is a deputy secretary of defense. Now. He's advising Biden. Uh, All right. Now, either he's so arrogant that he has no idea what he's doing, even if he's intelligent, or he's just so clicked into presenting himself in a favorable way, in spite of the fact that he's been part and parcel to making policies that that undermine the security of the country. He doesn't want to acknowledge it. So that's what's going on here. So, so these are people who surround Biden, you know, and also who surrounded uh, Obama. So I'm very critical uh, of of the Democratic uh, establishment, what they call the security establishment, because all what you see are these younger people. You know, remember, I'm an old fart now. So um, you see these younger people. They're at your age, 30s, and uh, terribly unexperienced. <laughs> terribly inexperienced, unwise. You can, think, you can think of 30. Don't worry. You can be very smart. So, but um, uh, you, you see these people, and you, you listen to them talk. This is the key. And when you listen to them talk, you can see they're saying things to make it look like they'll fit in 
with the crowd. Yeah. The, the crowd that's already in there. Yeah. That's, I have a former student. I won't say who she is. I've watched this young woman. She's not so young anymore, but she's getting older. Just make these statements one after another that I know she doesn't believe. She's much too smart. She's pretty smart, but she's also ambitious and she's not willing to do uh, to, to run the risk of not getting into the right crowd. And when she gets into the right crowd, which I think will happen, she will do terrible things. She will support terrible policies. And that's what we're in right now. You have these people vying to get in to this establishment, whether it's the Republican establishment or the Democratic establishment, saying things that are acceptable to the people who are already inside it, who have a very strange and narrow belief system. So, of course, we're the good guys. You, you, you said it earlier. Most Americans, the overwhelming majority of Americans have nothing but goodwill. Uh, toward toward the rest of the world it's it's amazing i mean i was literally earlier today i was at a parade and i was feeling so good watching these people march and uh you know american flags flying these people really want to do the right thing but let me tell you they're the, the government that represents them does not have those attitudes yeah. there are a lot of people in the government that just think uh rolling over everybody's an adversary and ruling over anybody who doesn't um, agree, you, you can be a nationalist who, who is not against the United States, but just doesn't want us to roll over you and take over your country, and you're an enemy. It has nothing to do with being a communist. It has nothing to do with being an, an autocrat. It's just that you are not going to comply with what we say you should do. Yeah. And that's enough to get you on the enemies list. So, so I think the, we're in for big trouble because the rest of the world is able to fight back now. It's beginning to get to a point where it can fight back. And we're not going to do well in the next decades, unfortunately. Yeah, the, uh, the idea of like American empire at all costs. Yeah. You know, you, you start with, we're going to hammer the Nazis. We're going to hammer or the Imperial Japanese unconditional surrender. But when you start applying that that same ferocity to the rest of the world when you start hitting with the same hammer the communist nail as well as i don't know like sanctioning a european country because they're not on board with us or bullying them into using our radar systems or buying our jets what else do you expect than resistance well there there is a problem uh, i i do think that most americans unfortunately not reflected by the actions of their government really want to do basically the right thing. And um, there's a very, um, all these people who are supposedly, you know, important decision makers in our um, government who worry about policy. They're really always afraid that, that the country is turning to, uh, uh, to, to isolationism. And uh, it doesn't seem that way to me. It seems to me that what the country wants to do is not get in wars that we have no interest in and that are not in our interest or not in the interest of whoever we're getting involved with. I mean, Afghanistan is a terrible place. And um, 
we did some very good things in Afghanistan over the two decades we were there because we wound up as part of our effort creating a group of educated people, you know, a, a tier of educated people. But the country is still basically what it was. And, um, you know, there was a great positive contribution in terms of providing opportunity uh, for people to get educations. But at the same time, we really didn't fundamentally change the culture and the political culture there. And now these people are stuck and they're suffering. I would be happy to just make it easy as pie for people to immigrate uh, to the United States. Those people who who have the education and the interest, they will be great contributors to our country. I am not afraid of immigrants. I like them. And um, instead, you know, I, I go downstairs. I, I live in a very nice building, you know, I have a rich wife, so she treats me nicely. So that's the and, yeah. That's so the, I go downstairs. That's the takeaway of this whole podcast is right. <laughs> hey, Tommy. Everything I'm saying, forget the nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, but um, you know, I come in the other day. I see a new person at at our concierge desk, and turns out he and he turns out to be an Afghan, and he was a translator for us. And you know, I I can't help but stop and chat with people i meet from those backgrounds and when i'm chatting with him and you know he was out you know and he's in combat with uh, with our people he risked his life and he had a, her- a hell of a time getting into the united states and you look at it and you say how can this be he was out there in combat with our soldiers the word of our soldiers should be enough yeah what else are you checking for <laughs> You know, so uh, and I'll tell you wh- why. He's probably a Muslim. And we don't like Muslims. Don't ask me why. I mean, uh, I've known Muslims throughout my life. And as a group of people, there are no di- some Some are not nice and some are nice. And I think the, the man who helped me most in my career uh, turned out to be a Muslim. He was the, he was the most saintly man I'd ever known. I never saw a man. This man was a saint on earth. If you believe in saints, you can't be a Christian. You got to be a Muslim because this man was. <laughs> I mean, it was just so amazing. And and uh, so so why why do you assume that these people are going to be a problem? You know, it's a, it's just a very disturbing to me to see the situation but i guess we want to get back to nuclear weapons don't we no 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 no, no I, well we, we will but I, no i was gonna say i completely agree with that i mean i'm i'm lucky enough to have through this podcast become friends with former tier one operators you know delta force and then guys that yeah. went even above that and worked for the cia paramilitary special activities division and they were saying last summer when we were withdrawing they're like there are guys there that fought and bled with us no different than any other special forces operator and we're leaving them high and dry right now yeah. and they're getting they're getting rounded up they're getting beheaded Can't yeah i mean out. how can you do this and and so so when you when you um talk about the problems the u.s has which i'd like to see us solve i should be very clear i would like this i don't think we're going to unfortunately because i think social forces are very hard to change but I'd like to see us solve them. 
But just step back, you know, people, it's not uncommon for quite, for people quite innocently. I mean, I'm talking, you know, I have a very good friend, uh, my lawyer, actually. And he says, well, I don't trust these people. You know, he just comes out with it the other day. We're at dinner. So I say, well, his name is Ted, too. And I say, well, why should they trust us? You know, we had an ABM, an anti-ballistic missile treaty, which was critical. I mean, if you don't think it's critical, look at China now. China was not planning to expand its its ballistic missile forces until we got going on this missile defense stuff. So we have a larger, more dangerous nuclear strike force in China without getting any benefit because these missile defenses don't work at all. They just create a fear that they might eventually work, which then causes an adversary to react. So you get the worst of both worlds with them. You get no capability, but you get the, the, the reaction as if they worked, which leaves you in a worse situation by far. Right? So we, we get out of that treaty. All right. Then, then we have Obama who makes the um, decision after the treaty is to go with this sea-based missile defense system. Now, nobody in the White House, nobody could have known anything about the history of the ABM treaty who was involved in that decision. Because if you understood the ABM treaty, you would have understood why a sea-based system was the worst and most provocative thing you could ever build. Because when you look at the ABM treaty, this old treaty from 1972, a large part of the effort in that treaty was aimed at preventing uh, air defenses from being upgraded in any way, no matter how minimal, to be able to engage uh, ICBM warheads. Because the, because the Russians had a, tr- a tremendous air defense system that we did not have, you know, you know, anti-aircraft missiles all over the place. And the people who were negotiating the treaty, treaty with the Russians were worried that they would not abide by the intent of the treaty, which was not to try to do surreptitiously try to do things to give them some extra ca- marginal capability. So if you look at that treaty, one of the things that bans is mobile ABM systems. Why mobile? Because if the system is mobile, you can concentrate it unexpectedly in certain places and, and, and defend those there if it, if it works. Of course, it doesn't work, but that's another concern. All right. But, but if it works, you have the potential to concentrate it in places where you choose to defend where the adversary cannot make adjustments quickly. So in order to make the treaty, the ABM treaty, uh, um, uh, not subject to, to, um, to pressures to, to break out of the treaty, there was an, an enormous amount of detail went into banning any kind of mobile system, whether it's an anti-aircraft system that has some capabilities to shoot at ballistic missiles. It was just a, a litany of, of, of declared statements, um, agreed statements, um, you, you know, throughout the history of this treaty, because there was a standing consultative commission where, where people, Russians and the Americans, were talking with each other all the time. This was a living document. So, uh, so what happens? Um, Bill Clinton, he decides that um, the THAAD system, this theater high-altitude area defense system, 
that it's not a violation of the ABM treaty, which it was. Why? Because Bill Clinton is being pushed by uh, the, right, the right of the Republican Party, and he doesn't want to look like he's soft on defense. So because he's more interested in, in undermining uh, uh, Republican attempts to take votes from him than he is for doing the right thing for the future, he goes ahead with this THAAD system. He tells the Russians, if you don't like it, tough luck. So they swallow it. So that's going on already in the 1990s. Then, then, uh, uh, the, then he goes ahead and he has this uh, system that we're currently building, which was originally, they keep naming, renaming these systems just to keep you out, off balance. There was the three plus three system. This is the system that we're still working with, the ground-based missile defense. Started out when Bill Perry, a hero of the left, but not so heroic at that moment. Um, he declares that we are going to go ahead with the three plus, and the three plus three system is a system we're currently building, which has no capability because it can't deal with decoys at all. And we were going to put ourselves in the position that within three years of the decision to go with the three plus three, we could decide whether we could deploy a full system in three years. So that's 19, I, I think 97 or eight. So we're already into two, the early 2000s. So Bush wins the presidential election. And by 2004, he takes us out of the ABM treaty in order to uh, go ahead with this three plus three system, which, of course, he renames ground-based missile defense system. And, of course, it can't hit anything, even when, even when the target is a strapped-down chicken. I mean, it, it, it has no ability to hit anything. Except, you know, so and of course, it has no ability to build to deal with decoys. So it's effective capabilities in any kind of serious combat situation would be zero. But we uh, we withdraw from the ABM treaty. OK, so then comes Mr. Obama, the good guys, the Democrats who believe in treaties. So what he does is he deploys this mobile system, which is as bad as getting out of the ABM treaty in terms of creating fears that lead to incentives to expand nuclear forces that, you know, that's worse than even the ground-based missile defense system, because this mobile system is going to have hundreds of interceptors, not a few tens of interceptors. So what does he do at the time? We have the 2009 reset right, where Hillary Clinton is going to show the Russians that she's really wants to work with him. So what the Russians do during the reset is they open up a corridor, an air corridor, so that we can fly directly into Afghanistan and resupply our forces in Afghanistan. 4,500 4, flights a year through right over Russia, Russian territory never into Afghanistan. That. that was in 2009. I never knew that. It's hard to find it. I, I was I knew about it, but I knew about it and knew it happened, but I was looking for it. It's very hard to find in the press. It's interesting. It is. So the Russians, that's a big sac you know, that's a big gesture on the part of the Russians. Yeah. They also the Russians also cancel a ten billion dollar deal with Iran to sell them these S three hundred air defense systems. So we don't want Iran to have air, air defense systems because we want to go there and beat them up whenever we feel like it. And, you know, the S-300s, 
you know, could could make it difficult to do and costly. So what the Russians do is they cancel this the system. Ahmadinejad, then the the leader, he goes nuts. So Russian relations with Iran just go into a ditch. But they did this because the the reset. So what do we do with the reset? We tell them, well, we're we're putting in these land based missile systems in Romania and Poland, just ashore. Uh, which we say doesn't violate the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. And by the way, this is not negotiable. We, we don't want, there's nothing you can t- say to us that will cause us to do things differently. This is what we are doing. Suck it up. Okay. Now, is there any surprise that by 2012 or 13, the, Everything had fallen apart. If you listen to this guy, Mike McFall, another guy at Stanford, you know, who was directly involved when he came to Stanford, he knew nothing about this system. I was at Stanford before he came, came back from the Obama administration. So we start talking about the system and he's very cautiously asking me things about it because he knew I'd done a lot of work on it and written extensively on it. And it's clear he doesn't know anything about the system, and he um, uh, uh, and he um, he doesn't want to show me how little he knows. So he's asking me these circumspect questions. But at the same time, he was involved in talks with the Russians, where he was telling them he was telling them for Hillary Clinton, this is not a negotiable deal. But today he stands up and he talks about the Russians being responsible for the collapse of the 2009 reset. Now, this guy, this guy is a professor, right? He's supposed to be a scholar. If he wants to be a political hack, then he should resign from Stanford and be a political hack. But if Stanford lets him act like a scholar when he promulgates false information, they're responsible too. So you see, there's a whole, so you're seeing the world as I see it which is maybe a crazy world. Maybe I'm nuts. <laughs> but, uh, but, but you know, I see a breakdown in integrity everywhere I look. You know, because, uh, you know, people threw people out of faculty positions at universities during the, during the, and at the end of the Vietnam War because people, faculty members, thought that these people had gone beyond what a scholar could justify. It's not like you and I, as scholars have an argument and it's based on different interpretations of the same, you know, facts that we agree on or, or we have differences in why, how we, uh, uh, how we understand what the situation is. And you can all look at it and say, look, there's an honest difference here. And so you, your view, I can't say it's wrong. It's just, it's another view and it's legitimate. I just don't agree with it. That's not going on here. This guy, is is promulgating false information, false history, and using that false history to, to blame the Russians for things they did not do. There's plenty to blame the Russians for. Take take me, I, I'm happy to blame them. <laughs> but not for that. And this guy has been stoking war, you know, war and aggression toward toward the Russians ever since he's been out of government. So and, and the university lets him do it. So it's like it's like you and I both looking at the Mona Lisa. 
and we have different interpretations. You say it's yes. about a woman smirking. I say it's about me sucking at T-ball when I was little. You're like, I don't really agree with that, Tommy, but I can't. We're looking at the same thing. You're telling me how this picture evokes those feelings. But, but I'm not telling you she's not smiling. She doesn't have, you know, I'm not telling you. Guy, I can show for sure she doesn't yeah. have a smile on her face. You know? Yeah. And this guy's looking at it and saying she only has one eye and her hair's on fire. And you're going, that's yeah. objectively okay. Yeah. So, so, so you have uh, these scholars who are uh, at these, you know, Stanford's a very prestigious institution. And, uh, and they're spreading false information in order to, in, to, to make a case against the Russians going into Ukraine. Well, there's a good case for the Russians going against the Russians for going into Ukraine. They should not have done it. Yeah. There's no excuse at all, even if he had the forces to do it. Okay. It was the wrong decision. It was a brutal, inexcusably, uh, you know, ill-considered decision. But that doesn't excuse the behavior that led to him taking those actions. And, you know, you, you have a man in a hostage situation and he's threatening to shoot um, to shoot hostages he has. And you go in there and you spook him and he starts shooting hostages. Who's responsible for not trying to negotiate it, the situation away without loss of life? So, you know, certainly he's responsible. He's taken hostages. You know, this is not a nice person, whatever. But you doesn't make you responsible that you go in there and spook him and he starts killing people when there are other things you could have been doing. Sometimes you had no choice. That's true, too. But uh, this is what's going on these days. And and people are just looking for they're looking to place the blame. And the problem is not that the Russians are getting treated unfairly. The problem is that we're not learning from history. And if you don't learn from history you can be sure you are going to repeat it. Do you think, and again, I don't know how, not that you have a crystal ball, but I'm going to throw the responsibility on your shoulders anyway. <laughs> do you think, do you think our act, because the first thing I thought when I saw people floating the idea of like the first nuclear strike, I was like, this is, this is too insane. The more time that it's passed, I've looked at it and wondered, is there something I don't know? And I look at something like, the sprint abm right the sprint anti-ballistic yeah, missile, which yeah. is the most in anyone listening google it youtube it was like zero it's an impressive mach, system a little you were at a mach 10 in five seconds or something a hundred <laughs> three, three seconds whatever it is is insane <laughs> three you, watch, you watch the videos of them it looks like one of those old it's hotter on the outside than the inside <laughs> it looks like one of those old old-timey 1910 videos where everything's sped up yeah. but it's real it's real time yeah, right, right and then if you look into that there was actually another program sort of under it called the Hibex, H-I-B-E-X, yep. which one had four times the acceleration of it, had 400 Gs. Yeah. And then looking at, and I know it was mostly a bluff, but you know the Strategic Defense Initiative, Star Wars, and uh, Lieutenant General James Abramson, all, you can go find all the speeches of him back in the day talking about particle beams and lasers and, yeah. and uh, missile garages in orbit and all that good stuff. And it's been, I mean, we're four decades removed from it now. Part of me is wondering, it doesn't excuse our own arrogance and our own hypocrisy and our unwillingness and or willful arrogance or ignorance 
of the past. Part of me thinks it might be also that like there's a new toy in town that I don't know about that's maybe classified. Do you think that could justify any actions or is that giving them too much benefit of the doubt? Is it no, they're just they're in ivory towers and they're so high up that they're not getting enough oxygen to their brain? Well, uh, I think, um, first of all, um, in the technology area, the technology area, not necessarily intelligence, um, it's nearly impossible to imagine anything that is truly revolutionary that you can't uh, deduce is either possible or might might be being done in what's called the black world. So, um, yeah, somebody might have, uh, you know, a very fast sub hypersonic uh, uh, stealthy vehicle, you know, uh, uh, although that's a problem because of plasma sheaths, but, you know, you know, there's enough money floating around in that world that they can do things. And uh, they did some amazing things. The SR-71, for yeah, example. Yeah. Remarkable technical technical achievement. Remarkable. And, um, and you know, the spy satellites we were launching were, were remarkable achievements for the time. And the early warning uh, satellite systems that uh, we first launched in the 70s, these were when when the best, when very, very good people we're in the system uh, and there's still some very good people, but it's not, not enough. And the system has ossified. So I think that there's very little that's really likely to be groundbreaking. It, I, you know, it could be, but it's highly improbable. Most of the people I have encountered where I've had debates or, I don't know if you want to call it skirmishes with, or, you know, um, I, I try to make the, the, the discussions uh, you know, civil, but, but where they trot out, well, I know something you don't know. Um, uh, it turns out not only do they, they don't know anything. They're just, um, first of all, in my experience dealing with very sensitive matters, you don't even say, I know something you don't know. Yeah. You would never say it. Yeah. If you knew what you were doing, you would never say, I know something you don't know. You'd never say it, period. I know, because I've been in that position. Just never say anything. And um, and the problem, again, is that just because people have access to classified information, it doesn't mean that what they think they know is correct. I was just on the phone with an old friend of mine. He's uh, reminiscing with me. And uh, uh, we were talking about all the documents that we went through at the Pentagon when we were working on things together. Uh, and we did a lot of damage to a lot of bad programs. And, um, and, and how almost none of them, he inherited, what, he inherited this library from me because he, he came into the Pentagon after I left, which he, he, he called this great classified library because whenever I found a document that was really informative and well done, I put it in my safe and I, you know, I had a say, I had drawers and drawers of safes with filled with uh, really uh, important. I mean, you know, informative documents about sensitive areas and technology and operations. 
and I was working for the chief of naval operations. So I had pretty good access and, and um, all of it was uncatalogued, of course, which was against the rules uh, because you couldn't spend your time cataloging it. And uh, so he comes in and he finds this and, and, and he says, wow, you know, but the joke between us is that there was hundreds of times other more to other documents that weren't worth the paper they were printed on. They were just nonsense. They, they, they weren't even wrong. They, they, they had no significance of any kind and they were classified. So someone reads this and, oh, I know that the Russians mean to do this. And I know that the Russians mean to do that. What do you know? You know, somebody talked to a janitor at some facility. And they said, well, there were these big cables coming. I literally had a conversation like that. They had interviewed this guy and there's a janitor. At a, at a, you know, could be a smart guy, just sure. wasn't lucky enough to get educated. But he was a janitor. He had, he had no formal knowledge. He says, oh, they had these giant cable, you know, cables, power cables coming out of that facility. Well, it could mean something and it, and it could mean nothing. You know, we found facilities so when we, you know, intelligence gathering where there were very large energy support systems going into some place. And we said, what's going on there? Yeah. So they cued us. So it's not as if, but that doesn't mean that they have a giant laser being pumped by this, these cables that nobody has ever seen before and defies the basic physics of what laser propagation. And, uh, and there was a, a lot of that stuff in the intelligence community, a lot of it. And it was, I found it very disturbing because very few people in the intelligence community that I met were adequately trained to do the jobs that they uh, were supposed to be doing. So when I first came to the Pentagon, I said to myself, oh, I'm really interested in the Russian ABM system. So I find that the Defense Intelligence Agency has a, um, uh, has a unit th that uh, spends all of its time looking at Russian radar systems. Wow, I'm going to go over there and talk to these guys. And So why does the radar have this waveform? Just, I don't know. Um, why does it? Why did they choose this frequency to operate? Well, I don't know. <laughs> so I start getting books on radars. Great book if you ever Skolnik S K O L N I K. He's a great guy. You find out what the waveform is 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 optimized for from Skolnik. You find out why the frequencies are chosen from from <laughs> you know. So 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 my education was really first to find facts. And then the next part of it was to use unclassified technical sources to understand why those facts made sense. But the people couldn't tell me anything. It was, it was astonishing. Could it it be, was just astonishing. Could it be All these intelligence guys. I'm sorry? Could it be possible that um, it's muddying the waters because you're never going to stop 100% of moles or traders or whatever? Is it possible that not only do you compartmentalize everything to make it impossible for like lateral and vertical uh, information well, there transfer, is a lot of, but the, also muddy the waters? Yeah, but if you have a unit that's job is that's looking true. at the you know the Russian radars, that's true, and they can't tell you why a radar uses a different set of frequency bands. There's something. I mean, I today somebody shows me a picture of a of a radar. 
and and identifies the frequency band, I, I can tell you almost instantly what it's for. <laughs> you know, it's because I've learned a little bit about radar technology. The technology is universal. And everybody uses it, everybody that's a technically advanced country because it's so valuable. And uh, so it's astonishing that you have a unit filled with these people and they can't tell you the most basic things about them. They can show you a picture and they can give you a document with the frequency and the power estimated by somebody who's a contractor who's outside. I have a very old, good old friend who worked at Lockheed. He, he used to, um, this real interesting character, real iconoclast. And uh, he, I always would joke with him, he designed the SS-18. The SS-18 is this very large. Well, what happened is he was at Lockheed, a brilliant, brilliant engineer. This guy is just like, was born genetically engineered to be an engineer. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, and he... Um, he was involved in the submarine launch ballistic missile program. The, uh, that's where I met him. He was Navy's submarine launch, launch ballistic missiles. It turns out that uh, he's so skilled, so knowledgeable about, uh, about missile technology because he's such a, I mean, he loves engineering. He just, there's nothing he won't spend time to learn. They picked him up and the national security agency had, uh, it's, it was secret at that, a very sensitive piece of information at that time, but, now it's not because the Russians know, but we had managed to break into some of their communication networks and he could listen or have it translated to them what they were talking about in their, in their equipment with the equipment, uh, you know, construction. And we also were, when you test the rocket, you have what's called telemetry. You, everything on the rocket that you can, possibly instrument put an instrument on you do and you sent you know the rocket thinks it's going this way well maybe it's going this way plus or minus a small difference and because you track it so you want to know everything that the rocket thinks it's doing and you want to know you, you want to know everything about the rocket what what, it, what its internal systems are doing so you have tremendous amounts of telemetry well we had figured out how to read their telemetry so in some sense we knew as much about a missile test as they did Mm -hmm. So he would read this telemetry and he never knew what the rocket looked like, but, but he said, well, it, you know, must have this. And he designed something on it, you know, throws out warheads this way because it looks <laughs> anyway, I took him to Moscow like 20 years later uh, for a visit with the for talks we were having with some Russians about, uh, you know, arms control negotiations. And, and, and of course he, this guy's a character. He, somehow finds some one of the Russians in the crowd of uh, Russians speaking to us is a missile engineer too. And they bond <laughs> and, and the guy takes them out to some museum that used to be secret, but is no longer secret at that time. It was the Gorbachev period. And, and he shows them the rocket that, that he had designed from, from the telemetry. And he comes back and he says, you know, it's, it looked exactly like I guessed. <laughs> so, so, um, so, so the reason we had, and I remember when I was in the Pentagon, before I had met this guy, I was looking at a very, a very um, well-written, extremely um, explanatory and, and, you know, understandable document 
about the SS-18. That was the same, this guy wrote it. In other words, he had been involved in, in listening to the, the telemetry, and he wrote this document. I didn't know who he was. I remember at that time, I didn't know. I had, I had almost no experience when I came in. So I said, where did we get all this information? <laughs> I just didn't know. And uh, years later, I run into this guy, and I learned that he's the guy. So I always say he's the guy who designed the SS-18, you know. So, so, um, so, so these guys in the Defense Intelligence Agency who have this radar data, someone put it together who knew what they were doing. They, ha- they found somebody, some, probably some guy at the Naval Research Laboratory, which does a lot of radar, or MIT Lincoln Laboratory, who's a real expert in radar gave them the intelligence, and then they produced a document that explained how the radar works and what it does. Here, these guys have these documents. They don't even know how to tell me about the documents. So give me, tell me which documents to, uh, you know, I, 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 could, I could use. It, 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 I mean, it's, um, it's a vast system filled with people who are, who are dangerously incompetent, I'm afraid. So I don't have a high regard for intelligence. I mean, I know intelligence people who are incredibly capable and smart, and 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 I hold them in very high regard. But the agencies themselves, they're bureaucratic nightmares. Do you think, and I know we've gone over an hour, um, are you good at doing like another 15 minutes or something? Yeah, we can do it. Okay. Um, do you think... Do you think anyone has the big picture? And I know by design, you, no one is supposed to because you don't want to have one person that you could kidnap and then it's just a, an intelligence total coup. Do you think there's anyone? I mean, is there some like stereotypical? Is there some general in some bunker that has the big picture or some AI? Or despite all of the wonderful technology and hypersonics and whatever ultimately is it still just a bunch of just kind of bumbling idiots well i wouldn't call them bumbling idiots but bumbling human beings it's maybe a better way to describe it and and uh you know uh i have met some uh i've certainly met some superbly capable general officers um and i have met some officers and i just look at them and i say how is this possible <laughs> i mean uh, literally and um so um among these really capable military officers there are some who have a relatively broad picture um i wouldn't say it's comprehensive but i don't think anyone could could have a comprehensive picture um in the civilian oversight it's I haven't met anybody that I really thought knew what they were doing. There might be, well, you know, there might be certain people. Pierre Spray was a guy who talked, uh, you know, he was a very broad, but he was probably closed then. I'm certainly, uh, I mean, I I have a pretty broad picture, but I wouldn't claim I have the kind of picture you're talking about. Um, uh, But um, the civilians... Uh, who advise the president typically don't know what they're doing from what I can see. Um, Let me give you an example. Uh, James Clapper. Yeah. uh, He was the, of course, Obama's uh, 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 head of uh, uh, 
intelligence. What, what do they call him? DNI, the Director of the National DNI, Intelligence. Yeah, 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 DNI. Um, I was looking at the um, uh, the nerve agent attack that occurred in 2013 in Damascus, and um, there are te- this technical information I was able to derive on my own, and um, and then as time has passed, more of these guys write their memoirs, explaining how great they are. You know, what great guys they are, what geniuses they are, how well they did, and so. So I now have uh, a general insight what happened uh, when this horrifying nerve agent attack occurred in 2013 in Damascus. And one of the critical pieces of information that I developed, I developed, not them, was that the munition, the, the, the rocket that carried the sarin, the rockets that carried the sarin using that attack could only travel two kilometers. The reasons were the, 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 the rocket, it looks, basically they took an artillery rocket, these slim, long rockets, you know, and they took the warhead off the artillery rocket and they took a barrel with, with a sleeve inside it and slid it over the top of an artillery rocket and created a rocket that was like a barrel propelled by an artillery rocket. Well, the aerodynamic forces on this are tremendous. Yeah. So it's like a balloon, you know, slows up very fast. And the weight of the payload now is instead of five or six kilograms or 10 kilograms, it's 50 or 60 kilograms. So you take this rocket that has a 20 kilometer range normally, and this range goes down to two kilometers because this aerodynamics has been destroyed. And, and it also has a payload that, you know, is tremendous relative to the rocket propulsion capabilities. So I, I did the work on it. I, I started because I was interested in this. And I didn't know in advance that the, um, that the rocket would be such short range. And when I first did the calculations, I, I actually didn't believe them. And I went back into the literature on drag coefficients. I did a lot of work to, to find out this simple fact, two kilometers range. So I happened to be talking to my brother-in-law. He's a former intelligence officer, smart guy, um, technically sophisticated, but not broadly uh, technically sophisticated. And I described this to him, and he says to me, well, of course, we saw this in Vietnam. So what are you talking about, Rick? He says, well, you know, in Vietnam, uh, when we were fighting in Vietnam, Vietnam War, the Vietnamese would take a barrel filled, in this case, with explosives, and they'd put a hole in the middle of it, and they'd stick a, an artillery rocket uh, through the hole, and they'd launch, uh, they'd launch this barrel filled with explosives at us. And I'd say, well, he says, then they had a range of one or two kilometers. So, so this guy knew off the top of his head what I, it would have taken me, you know, a week or two of, of serious analytical work. So what, I, what that tells me is that if there were experienced people in a team, if he were on a team 
of experienced uh, intelligence analysts, he would have caught this because yeah. he's smart. In other words, he would have looked at this and said, this rocket can't travel 20 kilometers. He would have known this. So Clapper, Clapper comes up with this explanation to, to, uh, to the president, to Obama, telling him that these, these uh, sarin uh, barrels, barrels of sarin, were launched from tens of kilometers away into, uh, into Zamalka, this suburb that was hit with all these, uh, this nerve agent attack. Well, they couldn't have been from tens of kilometers away. They, they could only have been from two kilometers away, which was inside the rebel-controlled area. So there were people inside the rebel-controlled areas who were launching the rockets into this location. Now, why? Well, if you know that the president of the United States is going to attack the Syrian government and blame them for, blame them for it and attack the Syrian government for this, why not kill a few of your own people? These are not nice people to begin with. You know, yeah. these uh, uh, fi freedom fighters. As, uh, <laughs> so, um, so, so I point this out, and then I start looking for, uh, you know, so they, they write up. So what happens? Um, uh, this guy, uh, Ben Rhodes, Who's uh, another uh, genius in, in the in the Obama administration, National Security Advisor staff? So, Clapper says, "Why don't you write up a report for the for the public?" So they write up this report, and it makes all these statements, which, if you knew technically what you were doing, absolutely could not be true. They could not be true. So, could not be true that the that the sarin rockets came from Syrian government-controlled areas. It could not be true that we could tell where they were launched and where they were from. We could tell that rockets were launched because we have, but we can't tell what direction they're launched in, and we can't see the impact because unless it has an explosive warhead on it, we can't see that. So, because I, I know more about the satellite capabilities of our early warning systems and Ben Rhodes does who's advising the president and writing a report for the public. Okay. So, so who is this guy? Well, you know, it comes from a good family, you know, good wealthy family, privileged family, you know, he's gone to all the right schools and, you know, he's worked his way up as a important democratic uh, policy analyst. And, you know, he's advising the president, nobody on the staff, including Clapper, the defect, the the the, the um, uh, director of national intelligence understood the basic capabilities of our early warning satellites. Some guy who's outside, some pinhead guy at a university, knows more about it than the guy who's advising the president. Well, what does this tell you? You you ask, you think that there's someone in that group of people that have the overview? <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> That's terrifying. Well, it should be terrifying. And and I can't get this article published. The moment I, I start talking about this, the editor says, it's not believable. Well, what do you mean it's not believable? You tell everybody, everybody, including the UN, accepts that this, that this rocket goes two kilometers. When, when I published this result a few days after the nerve agent attack, uh, 
the UN was surprised and the UN team brought in a team of experts to do a, an independent calculation and they got the same result I got. So the UN knew it too. So now you might ask, the United States has this claim that the Syrian government did it. The UN knows that the rockets could not have come from the Syrian government-controlled areas. Why have they not said anything about this? What good is the UN as an honest broker if it doesn't say anything about it? You, you see, you're getting into my mind. You're, you're, you're beginning to see how I see the world. What is the, what is the Director General of the UN doing when he sees the United States making this claim? I can tell you what he's doing. I'm not going to say anything that contradicts what the United States is claiming because they give us a lot of money mm -hmm. and I don't want them running me out of the UN like they do any time there's an ambassador who gives them a hard time. That's yeah. what he's saying. Yeah, I've got a good job. Yeah. So there's, there's not a lot of independence in the system that, and, and wisdom in it. Were you ever in, you were never able to get that published? Not yet, but, uh, you know, it might take another five or ten years, but I'll do it. I was going to say, you just bring the paper on here. You can read it and walk me through it. I don't care. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll give you a talk on it. Uh, I'd be happy to give you a talk on it. I put, put, put a PowerPoint together. We'll sit here. I on... have a PowerPoint. So yeah, let's do it. Put... Screw them. We'll yeah, publish no it problem. Here. I've given PowerPoints on it. What do I care? I think care? there was one PowerPoint I did that was taken off YouTube. Well, hey, I got permanently banned because I kept interviewing Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough. So it wouldn't be the yeah. first time that we've, yeah, we've, yeah. we've published the verboten information. Why not uh, let them talk and disagree with them if, if, they're, if they should be disagreed with? I'm not even saying they should be. Because, you know, what is, what is going on when, when you can't uh, speak, provide an analysis? And, uh, and I'll tell you, the people that they let analyses from our, uh, our people who are not qualified. You, you probably know of Mr. Higgins. They know deep down that they can't stand up to it in the arena of open debate. So you have to. Well, that may it. be. I don't know what it is. That's all. I don't know what it if is. You knew I, if you knew it was truly wrong. If I, if I sat here and told you that the Mona Lisa is representative of me being terrible at T-ball. Yeah. You're not going to censor me. You're going to go, go make a fool of yourself, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's what well, maybe maybe that's it. I don't know. I think you should absolutely come on here and, and publish your paper. Who cares? What do I well, I, I think there's a, a mindset that there's a lot of misinformation, a mindset among people who would be otherwise they should know better. Let me be clear. They should know better, but otherwise might be reasonable. And they think that this is spreading misinformation. But but the problem is. You have to look at the information and figure out whether it makes sense or not and whether there's a, an analysis behind it. There's never been a time in human history when there hasn't been misinformation. When yep, you're going for a discovery, right now, every cure for cancer is technically misinformation because we still sure. don't have it figured out. We have ways to go about it. We have chemotherapy. We have, you know, like we, we ablate it with radio waves, but no one, no one has it figured out yet. So today, anyone that says they have a cure for it, is misinformation. Does that mean we stop it? No. We fund it nonstop until we eventually find it. We eventually yeah. find Well, you it. verify that their claims have a basis, and then you... It's misinformation it. to land on the moon. If someone says their rocket works, well, after a lot of tests and a lot of deaths, eventually we walk, and then we go, ha, that's how you do it now. 
But until yeah. it happens, it's misinformation. The world is flat. And if you say otherwise, it's misinformation. There, can no, there cannot be a heavier than air uh, flight until the Wright brothers do it. But before that, it was misinformation. It will always be misinformation. It's, the human genome is far too complex to map it until all of a sudden it is. And for 20 bucks, you can, ha- you can get a cheek swab and have your thing uh, sequenced. Until then, it's misinformation. Yeah. There's never been a time when there hasn't been misinformation. It was misinformation to say Russia was certainly going to invade Ukraine. They were just building up armaments. Yeah, it's all well, misinformation. They didn't know that. The, there's no way they were. Uh, they took a guess. It was right, uh, but they didn't necessarily know uh, that he was going to invade. In my belief, yeah. My, point I mean, is, sir, I understand it looked like it. I mean, yeah. I'm sure that they were looking at the logistics and things. I guess my point is, is when people say things are misinformation, if we could wind the, if we could keep all the social media networks that we have right now, but just wind the clocks back two decades. And those little blue labels you get on YouTube when it says COVID or there was no election fraud or climate change or whatever. If you had posted a video saying, hey, man, uh, my dad was a Vietnam veteran and he said the our justification to go into Iraq kind of looks like the Gulf of Tonkin and we're just getting pulled down to another quagmire. You get an email that says this video has been removed from misinformation because the yeah. Department of Defense has claimed that there are WMDs in Iraq and two decades later and. 5,000 American deaths and 1.5 million civilian deaths, we all look back and go, yeah, it was misinformation, but it doesn't matter now because Colin Powell's dead. Yeah. It, it, it's, everything's misinformation until it's validated, and that is my pitch. Well, there's, there's, there's wrong information uh, that is... There, I mean, the problem per- is there are different motivations. You can yeah. tell, tell, knowingly tell something you know. Sure. So, so... And and a lot of that is going on yeah. on both sides in this Ukraine war. You can't get an accurate piece of information uh, from the news at all. Yeah, you just can't get it. Yeah, and uh, you know you. The interesting thing is that all these there's so many things on on of all of all places YouTube, different people that they let it, you know that show you uh, information about various aspects of the war. If you're sophisticated enough to be able to pick through the nonsense from the sense you can actually get some real information about what's going on. Yeah. But, uh, you gotta be pretty sophisticated, well-trained person. I think you should definitely publish your paper here. And I think that would be an awesome second episode. If you would want well, to, do that. I can do it sometime. Yeah. I think we need to do it. Be um, happy to do it. We've been running for an hour and a half. I was going to ask you, I guess we could save it for a lot of time. What you think the uh, the tic tac was off the off the Nimitz in two thousand four? The the what? The tic tac, the UFO. Remember that? Oh, I don't. Commander yeah, Fraber. I, I, I have no. Uh, I, I I just have no knowledge of that at all. To be honest, I oh just really? Oh, you should you should watch the uh, the Joe Rogan where the Navy command Commander Fravor goes on and talks about it. And uh, yeah, it's like the most. It's probably like the only realistic UFO evidence oh i'm 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 sure there are others realistic ones the problem is to know what it is uh it's uh very very hard to uh i mean it it's hard you know the, the simple explanation that it's something that is intelligent that's run by is is hard to believe because of the distances involved but then there's so little we really know about space and time you know you just don't know. And uh, I think I think what? there's 
two explanations. I think it's it's not that the distances aren't great. It's that we there's something we don't understand yet. Just like there will yeah, be heavier. That's what I say. Like, yeah, it's time, space, space and time, time. We don't know. Or I think they've cooked up something in Skunk Works. <laughs> they've cooked up something fast. Uh, yeah, that that seems doubtful to me because it's just too advanced. Whatever let, it is, it's too advanced. It does too many wild things. Let, let me dream. What? Let me dream. Let, well, let it me could, you could be right. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you could be right. Could I be think. Right. Uh, but uh, I think. Uh, I think Commander Fravor said uh, at the altitudes they were flying at, if the SR seventy one went by at full speed, it would take sixty seconds to go over the horizon from where they were, and yeah. this thing went over the horizon at, in under a second. So yeah. if you calculate it out, it comes to like Mach one eighty. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's it's just uh, it's it's. It's something is going on that's so beyond our uh, our science, and uh, even if it's an atmospheric phenomenon, it's so beyond. Still, anything. yeah, there uh, is no explanation we, that isn't fantastic. If it's yeah. skunk works, that's insane. Yeah. If it's alien craft, that's insane. If it's a natural yeah. optical phenomena, that's insane. There's no, there's yeah, no answer right. to that. There's nothing. One there's day. nothing that, right. Yeah, I think that's a basically correct. Yeah. Statement. yeah 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 real bold take there tommy the ufo yeah. is wild yeah okay more bold assertions dr postal thank you so much for coming on man thank you for an hour and a half of your time that was brilliant i thoroughly enjoyed that i got to uh i hope it uh i loved it yeah well, i absolutely loved it yeah i don't care what anyone else says i love it well that's all right that's so i tell every guest but you you know a little bit about postal's world now what what the what he sees and the way he sees it at least yeah, i think the only answer is, is marry a rich wife and go get in a nice building yeah well <laughs> steve seems to she be wasn't rich when i married her she made it all <laughs> she, made, she made it from from your grace from your aura it's no no on her own she's smart safe, safe answer safe answer question is is she if she's so smart, why did she marry me? But that's the there's the question. there's the that's the paradox. There's the paradoxical <laughs> question. It's what was the tic tac and why is she with me? Two questions right. that we won't be able to answer. Right, right. Uh, Doctor Postal, thank you so much, sir. I will email you this uh, episode when it's up, and uh, I would love to have you on again for your either for your paper or just to shoot the shit again because I, I I thoroughly enjoyed yeah. that. Well, that was, I, uh, I could I could give you a talk on the. Uh, Damascus nerve agent attack. I would love that. It's important because it's an intelligence failure and it tells you a lot about what the leadership, how well informed the leadership is. That's why it's important. And of course, it almost got us into a war uh, that was in some ways like Vietnam. I mean, it's not unlike uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident where we acted on intelligence that was uh, not correct. Yeah. and we escalated the war in vietnam maybe something else would have done that anyway but yeah but we could have gotten ourselves really into a a, a, a a sticky place with syria yeah if the president had acted on what he was intending to do well i think that would be an awesome second episode and i think that's a great teaser yeah. for it okay Thank well you, we, we can talk about it you take yeah. care that was awesome thank you so much and, and when you, you if you need to make changes it's you know uh I mean, emails are great, uh, but I, I don't check my email all the time. So Noted. something sudden comes up and you need to call me. Yes, sir. I got it's, your number. Yes. I have my phone with me. Noted. Okay. Will do. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Take care, Tommy.